have to say, there's a lot of faces here, people that I haven't met yet, so I don't know if you're new or if I just don't know you or I don't recognize you because I have your faces covered, mm-hmm. but good to meet you. My name is Lexi, and I'm a member of our preaching team here at the table and also serve on some of our justice and compassion teams. I live in Northeast D.C. with my family. We have a golden retriever. He's the star of the show. <laughs> he will jump on you, though, and we're working on that. Um, and I want to shout out my Tuesday night dinner party. I'm not sure if any of them are here, but that's been such a sweet community for us uh, during the time when we've not really been in community as much as we would want. So with that introduction, I am going to begin doing what I'm here to do, which is to continue us in our series on the Gospel of Mark. We have been in the series for some number of weeks learning quite a lot about Jesus through what Mark has written, but believe it or not, we are only one chapter in. So today we're beginning the second chapter, and I do want to recap the first chapter. A lot happened. Mark packs a lot in there. Uh, So to recap, uh, where we began was with Jesus receiving baptism from John the Baptist, uh, the Spirit descending in the form of a dove on him, a voice from the heavens saying, You are my son, with whom I am pleased, and that picture of the Trinity. And then next, Jesus was sent into the desert to be tempted. He passed the test, came back from the desert, started collecting his disciples, and beginning his ministry. And interestingly, in Mark, most of Jesus' ministry so far has been healing and exorcisms, these miracles. Um, We're used to thinking of Jesus as a teacher and a storyteller, but in Mark, he hasn't done a whole lot of that yet. He's mostly gained fame from being a healer and an exorcist of all things. So now we begin chapter two. This is uh, starting with Jesus. Jesus, he's returning from a preaching tour in Galilee and returning to Capernaum where he lives. And at this point, he has made a name for himself. He is quite the celebrity. And he's going to continue doing a lot of healing in our story today. He will be doing a healing. But what's different in chapter 2 from what came before it is that instead of just collecting followers, Jesus starts collecting questioners, doubters, and accusers. This story that we're going through today, it's about... um, you might be familiar with four friends uh, bringing a paralytic to Jesus to be healed. Uh, so it's, a, it's another healing story, but it's also a controversy story. This chapter in March is all about Jesus starting to stir up some controversy uh, with the religious leaders in town. There are five of these. This is the first. And Mark is using these controversy stories to show us What Jesus is saying about himself, what he's doing, is not ordinary. It's disruptive, it's radical, it's strange, maybe defiant. What Jesus is doing ultimately through his ministry is letting people know that he himself is God. But he can't say that all at once. Hey everyone, God! (laughs) He has to reveal it piece by piece through revealing parts of his identity, parts of his authority. Um, And Mark is doing this through through these controversy stories, beginning to do this through these controversy stories. So he's asking us to pay extra attention to the things that stir up trouble. 
that's what we're going to do today. But first, I'd like to say a prayer if you could join me. Faithful God, you are with us this morning. You have been with us throughout all of our histories and our collective history. Thank you that you've given us your word to nourish us, to teach us, to show us who you are. Will you help us learn a little bit about you and your character today? Father, anything I say is not true and is not kind and is not helpful. We pray that no one will hear it. And I mean that. And if, if there is anything that is unkind or unhelpful, I pray that you give someone courage to tell me. But we trust this time to you. We believe you're here with us, and we're so grateful for that. Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's dive in. So we're reading from Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I'm going to pause here. I noticed that when I mentioned this story, a few of you nodded your heads. Yeah, I know this one. And it's a familiar story. It's pretty easy to remember and hard to forget. We have this image of people clawing through a roof of a house and lowering a man down on a mat. Lots of preachers like to use this opportunity to talk about architecture of roofs at the time and how it was possible to dig through. For me, it's an image that's always stuck with me. This story is familiar. However, for the people in the crowd that day, the people hearing the story for the first time, it's really anything but familiar. This story is full of surprise. The first surprise is what I just said. People are digging a hole through a roof. I would guess that that is not something that happens every day and probably drew a lot of attention. And then the next surprise. We can presume that the reason why the paralytic was brought to, came to Jesus, was to seek healing in his body. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, your sins are forgiven. That's a little surprising. Don't you know this guy is here for something else? He wants healing, Jesus. Aren't you going to do that? But he doesn't. So we're surprised again. Now I do want to say here that um, there was a belief in the ancient world that physical disability and illness were related to sin, that sin caused these things. And we see this in John's Gospel when Jesus' disciples uh, point to a man who was born blind and say to Jesus, was he born blind because of his sins or the sins of his parents? Jesus has neither. He's just blind. It's nothing to do with sin. But 
But this is the mindset that some people in the crowd might have had. Maybe Jesus is forgiving this guy's sins, his paralytic sins, because that's why his body is this way. And that will heal him. But again, we see that's not the case. Jesus says your sins are forgiven, and he's not healed immediately. Jesus is breaking the link between disability and sin. And that's a good thing. This piece about forgiving sins is surprising because it's not what we thought Jesus was going to do. He's known to be a healer. That's how he got his fame. That's why there's a crowd. But now he's forgiving sins. That's one reason it's surprising. Another reason it's surprising is because people don't do that. <laughs> people don't forgive sins. God forgives sins. We have a whole process for that. You go to the temple. You bring your whatever animal you need to bring. The priest makes atonement for your sins on your behalf. And then God forgives. That's how that happens. People don't just forgive. But that's what Jesus did. And for that reason, for Jesus to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, is not just weird or strange or unexpected. It's, it's blasphemy. It's a big deal. Let's get back to the story. among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. He did it. He stood up, immediately took the mat, and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. So like I said, this is one of five controversy stories, and each of these controversies are revealing piece by piece parts of Jesus' identity and authority. And the controversy in this particular story is about Jesus' authority to forgive. I cannot overstate how much of a big deal this claim is. Sometimes today, we, who have had the Bible our whole lives, can read these gospel accounts and look back on the Pharisees and scribes and say, gosh, they were just so strict. They were just overly litigious and rule-keeping. Or maybe even they were threatened by Jesus and worried about their position of power in the community. But if we go back to that mindset of we have this thing for forgiveness, and it's what God does, and if you're saying you forgive, that's, that's not that. That's something different. It's reasonable for them to question the thing that Jesus is saying. There's nothing more reasonable for them to say, then, what are you talking about, Jesus? And for them, it goes really deep. It's not just about, we have a system for that, follow the procedure, go to the priest. It's deeper. It's that forgiveness is a central characteristic of the nature of God, and forgiveness is the only way that we can have fellowship with God. 
The stakes are super high. So don't mess with it. That's how we walk with God. Don't take it lightly. Don't play games. <laughs> Christians often make the mistake that before Jesus, God was strict and unquenchably unforgiving, that we needed Jesus to see forgiveness, but before Jesus, there was none. But that's not true. It's just not the case. Forgiveness has always been part of God's nature. That's right. There is a song that's going to come up on the screen that Jewish people have been singing since the time of David, which I'm not a historian, but was a pretty long time before Jesus was on the scene. <laughs> and it says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. This is a song about a gracious, merciful, forgiving God that the Jewish people, and especially the scribes and Pharisees, who studied God's word, they knew this God well. Forgiveness has always been who God is and what God does. So fast forward to Mark, for Jesus to say, miles and miles away from the temple, that he had authority to forgive sins, was very upsetting. I want to say one more word about the scribes and Pharisees. I've recently been learning about how anti-Semitism shows up in Christianity, and specifically in progressive Christian spaces. It looks different from how it shows up for our conservative siblings, but it shows up. And I, I want to highlight that now because these controversies and conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees are just the place where these kinds of anti-Semitic interpretations might show up. We, I will say we, progressive Christians, people who think about justice and think in terms of justice, often see Pharisees as oppressors and Jesus as a liberator. And that's applying useful categories to the wrong kind of thing. That's not what's happening here. My friend Elizabeth Moraff was a guest on one of my favorite podcasts called Reclaiming My Theology. I would recommend, if you want to write that down, I won't judge you for taking your phone out. <laughs> also, no pressure. Um, but in the episode, she gave a really helpful frame to think about uh, what's going on in these conflicts between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. And she says something like, we have to remember that all of these conversations between Jesus and the Pharisees are written for Jews, by Jews, are by marginalized people, for marginalized people. Mm-hmm. Jesus is Jewish, mm-hmm. and he's interacting with folks who are Jewish. This is Jewish people's business. So we, most of us, I think, are Gentiles eavesdropping on the conversation among Jews, including Jesus. And it will help us to remember that when the scribes are questioning Jesus, they're coming from a place of care for their community. They want their people to believe the truth about God, to walk closely with God, to follow God. They want their people to survive to do these things, even as a marginalized group in the midst of a notoriously brutal empire. 
They are worried that what Jesus is doing is threatening that community, either by teaching them things that are not true or by drawing the wrong kind of attention from the empire. They're coming from a protective space. Okay, tangent over. One thing that's peculiar about this passage is that Jesus knows the scribes are asking questions in their hearts. It says that he perceived it in his spirit. And I always thought that uh, this was like something about Jesus' mind-reading powers. And maybe that's true. Or maybe he just knows that he's saying something super provocative. And then, of course, people are asking questions. Of course, people will challenge it. I don't know. Mind reading powers sound cool. <laughs> Could be. I won't say no. But either way, however, he knows that people are asking questions. He does make a point to respond and to show that what he's saying is true. He asks, which is easier, to say that this guy's sins are forgiven or to tell him to stand up, take his mat, and go home? I'm not actually sure the answer to that question. Both sound not too easy. And then he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He tells the man to stand up and walk, and he does. All right, I'm going to point one more thing out here. I really nerded out preparing for this. Um, is it Heidi in slides? Yes. Yeah. Heidi, could you go back to uh, the last scripture slide? Mm-hmm. Perfect. Okay, so you see here it says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. Some translations have him saying that first sentence to the scribes, as if to say, hey, you with all the questions, watch this. I'm going to show you that I can really do it. And some, like this one, have him saying it to the paralytic, as if to say, son, I really did just forgive your sins. And I'll show you, I'll show you that it's true. Again, I don't know which is true, um, but it's something to reflect on as we think about the nature of Jesus and how he's interacting with the people in the story. All right, I think that's going to be my last tangent, but hope you're having fun. Okay, so, so far we've learned that the main controversy in the story is about Jesus' authority to forgive, and it's so controversial because forgiveness is such a big deal. It's a big deal to the scribes, to the crowd, to the paralytic himself. The question I have for you all this morning, the question I have for myself mostly, is this. Is forgiveness a big deal to you? And I'll be honest, forgiveness is a tricky concept for me. I think it's because when the concept of forgiveness was introduced to me, it was in this very transactional framework that went something like, God has rules, people break rules, people sin, God judges sin through Jesus, God forgives us and forgets our sins, and because we are forgiven, we are saved or spared from God's judgment. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's not completely untrue. I will say that. It's in scripture. This framework is in scripture. It's in Christian tradition throughout history. 
But I will say, it's not particularly inspiring for me. It might be for you and praise God, but for me, it's not. <laughs> that was fine. Um, it, for me, it's transactional and formulaic, and most of all, it doesn't tell me much about either why sin is so bad or why forgiveness is so good. And for the concept of forgiveness, might, there might be many reasons why it's a tricky one for, for you. Maybe it's been weaponized against you. Maybe you've been told you've got to confess parts of who you are that aren't actually sin, and, and that's created a challenge in, in thinking about forgiveness, and all those things are valid. Um, and I want to share a little bit about how I've been grappling with this idea of forgiveness, especially in this last week. Is that me? No answer. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, so I... Okay, I get tripped up in the part of the communion liturgy or daily prayer where we are supposed to uh, confess specific sins. Um, and I was talking to my husband, Connor, about this as I was preparing for this sermon. So I'm like, you know, what do you do when we're given time to, to confess? How do, you, how do you approach that? Um, and, and I was thinking, like, you know, confessing specific sins, the things that come to mind are like, I don't know, I went through a yellow light where I probably should have stopped. <laughs> Which we should take seriously, because there's been a lot of pedestrian deaths in D.C., so let me not minimize that. It's, it's a really serious thing. Or, like, maybe I kept my Zoom camera off because my internet connection was unstable. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, are those the things that I'm supposed to be confessing? Maybe. Um, but again, it doesn't feel that deep. It doesn't feel that inspiring. And, and I'm sharing with my husband, like, you know, the things that I really want to confess, but I don't know that I can, are this. I believe that the faithful Christian life is about generosity, being present with the poor, and putting others' needs before my own, and being deeply invested in the community around me. But day after day, I find myself earning a paycheck, putting my hours, sweeping the floors, walking my dog, maybe getting to the gym. My life is kind of about my to-do list. And frankly, my to-do list is kind of about my life. It's about me. And I don't really have time to even check everything off in the day. So how am I supposed to live the life that I believe God calls us to? And one reason why I find it hard to confess this is because I know if I confess this, but then the next day, I'm going to spend my time doing the same old thing, commuting, working. If I know that I'm just going to have to repeat this cycle over and over, how can I confess it? And what I didn't expect is this conversation made me emotional. Made me so, so sad that I believed in this beautiful vision of the Christian life that I didn't know how to live. And it kind of became a confessional for me as we were sitting there talking because Connor said, yeah, that's what, that's what confession is for. That's what forgiveness is for. Admitting your weakness and your inability to live the life that you believe Jesus invited you to live. But trying anyway, wanting to anyway, 
And you know, it actually gave me a little bit of hope. A little bit of hope that even though, yeah, tomorrow I'm commuting to the office, spending most of my time to do it. Gotta make dinner. Maybe I'll call my mom. I might find a little pocket to do something more faithful. That's what forgiveness can do. It enables us to confront the things that really grieve us, that feel hopeless, that make us feel ashamed. And in confessing them, we are freed to enter new hope. Forgiveness is about so much more than just avoiding God's judgment. Forgiveness is how we are reconciled back to God and invited to join God once again in the renewal of all things. That conversation with my husband was like a confessional for me. And the book of James says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Second Corinthians says that God has given us, God's people, the ministry and message of reconciliation that we might be Christ's ambassadors. Many denominations have formal uh, confession or reconciliation rites usually carried out by a priest. Uh, some even consider it a healing process and think of it as the same category as ministry to the sick and the dying. That's because through Christ's resurrection, both sin and death are defeated. We'll not have the last word over any of us. There are other ways we experience confession. Maybe you have a friend on speed dial you trust and is a safe place for you when you need to get something off your chest. Maybe your therapist appointments have become a safe space for you to let go of the things that make you feel shame. There's a podcast called The Confessional from Nadia Boltz-Weber, which this is going to be my plug for the Women's Affinity Group next weekend because we're reading uh, one of her books. Um, but this podcast uh, is one where Nadia Boltz-Weber interviews people who have done really regrettable things and gives them a space, a compassionate space, to confront the effects of their sin on their own lives and the lives of others. And in her first episode, she shares a story Story is kind of framing why she wanted to do this podcast, and I wanted to share it with you this morning. Um, it's a it's a pretty long and vivid story, so if closing your eyes helps you imagine the scene, you're invited to do that. But I'm not going to tell you to close your eyes. In 1992, when I was newly sober, I sat in a tiny New York apartment with a woman with advanced AIDS. While I fidgeted with the papers on which I'd handwritten all my sins. It was the fifth of 12 steps required of me to stop being such a drunk mess. And I was so filled with shame about my past that the only reason I trusted her to hear my moral inventory was that I'd certain, I, I was certain she'd not be alive eight or nine weeks later. She offered me some tea. And after placing a red cup and saucer next to me, she took her seat on a worn, easy chair from which she listened to me tell her about all the shit I've done. Excuse my language. Anna sat there, kind-faced and patient. Her breath rattled in and out of her lungs as my list of affairs, crimes, and betrayals rattled out of mine. I've been terrified of her judgment, but she held my confession 
with nothing but an easy compassion. And that compassion softened everything in me, enough that I could see the truth of my wrongdoing with even more clarity. I actually added some things in the moment that I'd been too afraid to write down before. And when I finished, she adjusted her oxygen tube and just said, let it go, girl. That shit is in the past now, so you can stop bringing it with you into the present. Her compassion moved the needle for me in a way her disgust never could have. And for that, I will always be grateful. When Jesus tells the paralytic to stand up and take his mat, the Greek word there for stand up is the same one used later in Mark, when the women are going to the tomb looking for Jesus, and a man says, you're looking for Jesus, the one who was crucified. He has been raised. That word, he has been raised, is the same. Mark's doing this on purpose. This is resurrection language. The compassion of God that we find when we confess our sins and receive forgiveness enables us to walk in resurrection life in newness of life, and to join God in the renewal of all things, which is what we like to do here. <laughs> so, as we do week after week, I'm going to leave you with a challenge and an invitation. My challenge is this. It might be obvious from what you've heard so far. I'm challenging you to spend some time confessing your sins to God. That might feel strange if it's not part of your practice. Give it a shot knowing that God is full of compassion. And if it feels more comfortable, maybe confess with a friend or someone else that you trust to listen with compassion. And an invitation. We're about to enter into a time of communion, and during the liturgy, there's an opportunity for us to confess our sins and receive reassurance of forgiveness. I invite you to simply pay attention to this part Pay attention to the words and pay attention to what God's up to.